1: hi ed harrison here for real vision i have the distinct pleasure of talking to daniel Lacaille, who is the chief economist and cio at dresses
2: daniel welcome back to real vision thank you very much thanks for having me ed always a pleasure
1: yes definitely i'm really excited uh you know i was telling you just before he came on uh we spoke about eight months ago right before this interview i was reviewing some of the things that we were talking about but a lot's changed because you and I, we were talking about the economies as the reopening uh, was was happening, and that was eight months ago. I mean, what happened in the reopening is is that the U.S. was looking terrible, and Europe was looking better. And you were like, "Hang on, uh, that's not how it's going to play out over the longer term, even over the medium term." And in fact, you were exactly right. What we're gotcha. now seeing is a a rally. In shares, in the economy of the United States, in particular, going forward, the real question is: is what, what should we think about this? Uh, how do we frame this economically, and how do we uh, invest against it? And that's what I want to talk to you about over the the next hour or so that we're going to have this conversation. So, frame it for me first. Uh, yeah. What's happened between now and uh, between when we last spoke, and what's happening now?
2: I think that what we have seen is the difference of how you target stimulus Uh, very clearly, very, very clearly. The United States has focused the vast majority of uh, the stimulus plans on uh, preserving the business fabric, on helping uh, families, and on keeping the, uh, the economy alive. Whilst in Europe, what you have seen is the vast majority of the stimulus plans aimed at uh, preserving and increasing uh, current government spending. Big difference. Big, big, big difference, actually. And if we think about it, one of the things that we have seen as well is that uh, the idea that was implemented in Europe that uh, putting together these massive furlough job schemes... Uh, was going to be the way to both preserve the job market and recover faster, has has proven to be wrong. And the reality is that the uh, we look at unemployment in the United States today; it is uh, slightly above six percent. In the eurozone, it's uh, above eight percent, plus almost ten more than ten million people in furloughed jobs. So I think that what we have seen is a much worse recovery of the employment base i think that what we have seen is a much more uh, detrimental to the economy response to the second wave of the covid-19 crisis and uh, the misguided lockdowns so i think in the united states you've had a much more uh, a much more flexible and at the same time much more prudent approach to the uh, measures to contain the virus and obviously the vaccine rollout we can't we can't forget that the vaccine rollout has been an absolute uh, success in the United States compared to a very slow bureaucratic and again uh, incorrect uh, rollout in the eurozone in the European Union
1: so everything you're saying is 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 interesting because when you look at it it's just a complete reversal of where we were before Uh, with everyone touting uh, the Eurozone and their response to the virus, and the US doing terribly. And actually, the UK was doing relatively poorly too. Now, the UK is also rolling out the vaccine very well. It seems that their economy is getting back on track well. What do you see going on there?
2: I think that what is happening in the UK is very similar to the United States. And that's what we discussed in, uh, in our conversation last time is that the United States and the UK are much more open, much more flexible economies than the eurozone one. And so therefore, the idea that the eurozone was going to recover faster, with all due respect, was almost impossible. You uh, know, it's it's it, and the and the reality is that it's such a directed economy, and uh, there's so many layers of bureaucracy driving not just the vaccine rollout, which is much slower than in the United Kingdom or in the United States, but the uh, the way in which the stimulus plans are being implemented for uh, fundamentally to, to direct it to uh, preserve and increase government spending. Therefore, what happens is that the, the multiplier effect of the measures that are taken is, is actually much lower and obviously, that, that uh, takes into account the uh, very uh, negative decision to implement aggressive lockdowns, then, uh, then opening, then locking down again, instead of a more flexible and more uh, limited and, and targeted approach like we have seen, for example, in the United States. So I think that what we're seeing basically is that the economies that, are, that have a larger level of flexibility- a larger level of uh, private entrepreneurship as well driving the small and medium enterprise factor and in which the 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 level the government uh, actions have been fundamentally driven to preserve the business fabric those are recovering faster and if you actually look at the eurozone uh, as an uh, as a total and then separate by each of the countries, you see that there's a huge difference in the recovery process, as well in the more flexible, uh, more open economies uh, that, like for example, the Netherlands or uh, or, or Germany itself. Now,
1: you know, before we get into what the uh, implications are for asset allocation, I want to take a step back because obviously, asset allocation, when you're a long-term investor, you're thinking about the long term. To think about this, framing it not just from on what's happening now and has happened over the last eight months, but just a general framework how we can think about this over a, a longer period of time. And I'm thinking in particular about the conversation you and I had in July, where we were talking about, uh, from your perspective, uh, a, a longer term view where we saw weaker growth coming out of each recession. Yeah. Um, uh, the way that I, I guess I would frame it is that what we're seeing now uh, is a manifestation of what we've seen before, which is, is that there's some level of government intervention, less perhaps in the US and the UK, or at least more targeted towards the private sector. Uh, and this intervention has morphed from being just a Monetary policy intervention, heavy on monetary policy, to monetary and fiscal policy, what you at the time were calling it the everything bailout. Um, First of all, is that your view today still? And to the degree that it is, uh, what does it mean for the economies over the longer term?
2: I think that um, we've gone from thinking about the bailout of everything to the bailout of anything for example we are seeing news today in uh, in europe about governments bailing out companies whose problems have absolutely nothing to do with COVID 19 problems that came from 2018 17 16. Uh, so that is an important problem i think that the other important problem is that there is a widespread view of seeing government as the lender of first resort as the solution of first resort instead of the solution of last resort which is which is very uh, negative for the in terms of implications for the level of growth that we get uh, once the pandemic is over, but also for productivity growth, which is absolutely critical for the estimates of uh, real wages. And I think that that uh, has not changed, actually. In, in, if anything, in my opinion, the recovery that we are likely to see once the base effect of the reopening is uh, behind us is likely to be much weaker precisely because of that of that situation that we just uh, mentioned before is that the uh, there's a constant uh, decision of bailing out or uh, m- helping the sectors of low productivity. But once the recovery is in full swing, what we are likely to see is a massive increase in taxation on the sectors of high productivity. So if you subsidize low productivity and you tax high productivity, and at the same time, government presents itself as the lender of first resort with uh, a generalized view that that is actually a good thing, then the the, the weakness of the recovery is, is significantly poorer, is significantly, is, is much, much, much weaker. So that is one big concern. And I come back to the point of productivity growth, which is, in my opinion, a key factor, because if productivity growth is not just subdued, but actually uh, zero, as we have seen in some economies in the previous recoveries, then real wages don't grow. And if real wages don't grow, then the problems of uh, uh, discontent, the problems of concerns about the situation of an average household in terms of the real disposable income increase. And I think that uh, uh, when we are thinking about a recovery in which one of the predicaments that we hear constantly is that we are going to see a massive boom of consumption once the economy fully reopens, if we don't see real wages going along with it, and if we don't see productivity growth improving, then this risk, not risk, the evidence of zombification is not just... Lower growth, it is a much worse situation for the poorer and the uh, middle class part of the economy.
1: Yeah. uh, And I think, uh, in terms of that, that's a great framing. And uh, it leaves me thinking about a lot of different things um, because ultimately, from a policy perspective, you have to get this right. Uh, Let me give you an example that uh, earlier today, I had a tweet out uh, uh, David Rosenberg, who I speak to often. I was reading one of his uh, latest uh, missives, and he pointed out that uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia's uh, governor, Philip Lowe, he was actually talking about exactly what you're saying. He said that uh, you know, for inflation to be sustainably within the 2 to 3% target that they have. Wage growth, wages growth, as he calls it, uh, needs to be material higher than it is currently. And he said the evidence strongly suggests that this isn't going to occur very quickly. He doesn't see it happening until uh, 2024. And his conclusion, therefore, is that we, the central bank, we're going to keep interest rates really low as a result of that. So- Wage growth uh, not going up. We are going to solve the problem by having incredibly low interest rates. Uh, to me, that's that's a question. Is that really the solution? Uh, if so, uh, how? And if not, why why not?
2: Well, obviously, as a central banker, what he is saying is they have two tools: increasing money supply and uh, lowering or increasing interest rates. That those are in essence the the pillars of what of the tools that they have but the problem is that this you don't address uh real wage growth with monetary policy you address real wage growth by uh, implementing policies from a fiscal perspective that incentivize high productivity And that is something that governments in general, and it's not a question of this party or another, that governments in general tend not to do, because by definition, a government that wants to keep things as similar as possible to where they are today will inevitably uh, direct the vast majority of the support schemes that fiscal policy gives them uh, to maintain the status quo of the sectors that exist nowadays and uh, and subsidize, in many cases, the low productivity sectors. But because the fiscal response is so huge and the deficit spending is so large in the periods of crisis, what happens when the economy recovers is that the fiscal policy turns to detrimental to productivity by continuing the subsidy on low productivity, but massively increasing the taxation on high productivity. So it's a double negative. So the point that many economists are making today is that is don't make the mistake, and that's my point as well, is don't make the mistake of to try to get a, a few tens of Tens of, uh, tens of billions of, of, of dollars of extra revenues in a trillion, in a three trillion hole. Uh, don't go and, and massively increase taxation because that is going to generate a much bigger problem of productivity growth and with it real wages and you don't solve that through legislation by saying look we're going to increase wages by by law because it doesn't happen and more importantly i come back always to the point you're hearing me all the time say the word real because i'm interested in real wages not in nominal wages you know because the the if you increase inflation through monetary policy like we're seeing today, in which the, the, comp- the disinflationary components remain. Absolutely, they do. But there has been a problem for many years of non-replicable goods and services that are rising much faster than real wages and then headline CPI, education, healthcare, uh, insurance, uh, you name it, fresh food, all of those factors. We need to be aware of the fact that uh, that the level of inflation for the worse off in the economy is much higher than that for you and me or the people that are watching us today, which we all belong to the the upper to middle class. No, So the point that I'm trying to make is that lowering interest rates and going further into negative real and nominal interest rates is not what is going to drive real wages higher. What is going to drive real wages higher is if the fiscal policy is is targeted more towards the creation of new businesses and to the incentive to increase the percentage of sectors of high productivity, because that is what is going to drive real wages higher. And the percentage of the population that is in the workforce higher as well. One of the concerns right now is this concept of the jobless recovery, isn't it? Is the fact that what, as we mentioned before, we are still seeing an elevated level, although significant improvement in the United States, but a very concerning level of unemployment and underemployment in the European Union, in which you have the the, the, the the epitome of massive fiscal policies uh, allegedly targeted towards helping the the worse off. The best social policy at the end of the day is creating jobs. And creating jobs can only come by not putting the brakes on the high productivity sector, in my opinion.
1: You know, um, in in all of that, the one thing that stands out for me is uh, when you focus on the real. You're talking about not only about real wages, but real wages as compared to the price level. I.e., you know, there's nominal wage growth. This is how much more money I'm getting, but then of course there's the inflation associated with it. And interestingly. Uh, up until this point, inflation has been tame, and it's been going down over a secular period of time. Globalization, uh, a lot of different things are responsible for that. But in the regime that we have now, which you described as the everything bailout regime, uh, now becoming the anything bailout where the government is the lender of first resort, is that the, uh, the way that inflation moves forward? Uh, is, uh, is low inflation something that we're going to continue to see?
2: Well, we will continue to see low headline CPI, consumer price index, low or subdued uh, headline consumer price index. But we must not forget that there before COVID-19, there were already problems all over the world of uh, protests in France, in Germany, in Spain, and Chile, in many Latin American uh, economies and some, and some other emerging economies about the rising cost of living. So how do we reconcile a very low headline CPI with uh, increasing protests against the rising cost of living? Again, it comes back to the basket, no? and it comes back to the weight of each of the products in those baskets. If uh, rent, uh, fresh food, education, healthcare, insurance, go up faster than real wages, yet technology, leisure, and hospitality come down, Headline inflation is obviously going to continue to look subdued, and it will actually uh, see a very big uh, move back to uh, a weak level in the second part of this year after the base effect is gone. However, the, the, the sticky part of inflation remains higher than uh, what uh, central banks or governments are thinking about. And that creates the discontent. We saw it, for example, in the inflation figures of the Eurozone. No, We saw the, the Eurozone headline CPI being very weak, you know, and significantly below the 2% target of the ECB, absolutely it was. However, you saw at the same time that fresh food was up 4%, that public services were up 3 to 4%, that things like that are rising faster. That is the problem, in my opinion, is that we need to be a little bit more granular about inflation, particularly from a policy perspective, because it's hurting the people that it's supposed to defend the most. Because on one side, policy continues to to be driven towards uh, increasing inflation at any cost. Inflation for for those non-replicable and essential goods and services actually is there for the things that we actually want and we actually buy and, and the things that we actually buy on a daily basis. If uh, fresh food is up 4% and technology is down 7%, the impact on inflation is very high. However, what do I eat every day and what do i not buy every day i don't buy every day a phone or a, or a or a or a camera no so i think that this is something that um central banks need to pay a lot of attention to in the next years as this uh bailout of anything continues which it will mm? because uh you're likely to see a rising uh, difference and a rising wedge between the people that have access to assets the people that have access to debt the people that have access to uh on the on their daily basket more of a of of a similarity to the basket that the government uses and the middle and lower classes and i think that that's a, an important factor particularly as you very well said before because It's much more difficult for the middle class to uh, rise up the the property ladder or the uh, wealth ladder when you have repression on wealth, and at the same time, you have a rising uh, price of housing, of uh, uh, all those essential core goods and services, which which negatively affect what it's basically doing is shrinking the middle class uh, in both sides. On one side, because their inflation is higher than what uh, the the government or the central bank perceives, and second, because they act, they they basically invest the the little that they actually save in deposits that are being consumed by monetary policy.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Yeah, uh, that's not a good outcome. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me ask you also on inflation, uh, since we're talking about that, about other factors that have been large in terms of thinking about inflation. I'm thinking particularly about China. I'm thinking about demographics, uh technology, and then finally um just general overcapacity at the end of this particular uh business cycle because of the pandemic and the fact that you know the new normal is going to be very different than the old normal.
2: Very good point. Those three factors, China as a as a Massive exporting machine of cheaper goods and services, uh, technology, and demographics are disinflationary. Absolutely they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh when policymakers look at the way in which they think of uh uh of inflation and the way that they think of target inflation, they should take into account those things. You cannot think of a two percent uh as uh, as a moderate inflation uh, when the the challenges that i mentioned before about the basket of that we that we are using or that is used officially for cpi reflect such massive disparities between different types of consumers but you also kind of think of um uh, that any policy in terms of uh increasing money supply or lowering interest rate is justified simply because inflation is not at two percent when in reality uh, considering that we live in open economies in which technology is creating positive disinflation because disinflation is not negative. Technology disinflation, which is productive and competitive disinflation, is actually very good. Uh, the the aging of the population and the, and the demographic component are not inf- disinflationary factors that should be addressed via monetary or fiscal policy simply for a very simple reason, because they have absolutely nothing to do with those. No, They have to do with the fact that we age and we consume in a different perspective, in in a different way. And China's competitiveness as an exporter Uh, not only China, but other emerging markets, India, et cetera, Um, those are positive disinflationary effects. We are able to uh, acquire more goods and services and better quality ones uh, with a a higher control of prices. So policymakers need to take those into account, not as negative disinflationary effects. They look at inflation, uh, policymakers, And they say, oh, prices are coming down, that is bad. Well, hold on a second. Is it a competitive, uh, is it an export-led or demographic-led disinflation, because that is actually good, or is it a postponement of investment and consumption decisions because of the fear of lowering prices? Because those are two completely different uh, things that have completely different policies uh, that that need to 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 be ad- to be used to address them. No, so I think that there. I think that basically what I find is that the is that central banks and governments are using the tools of a nineteenth century economy for a 21st century economy, is that they are thinking of inflation and deflation as one only thing. I don't see any problem in the fact that this camera that I'm looking at is 75% cheaper than it was a year ago. There is nothing negative about that. But so, uh, but what we cannot say is that the, this camera is 75% cheaper. I don't know if it is, but imagine that it is, okay? It's 75% cheaper, and uh, mm, the fresh food that my children eat every day is up 7%, and I'm not addressing the second, but, and I'm worried about the first. So we need to be more granular about inflation, because it, the, if we address with the same policies, of the 20th century, a 21st century economy. What we are doing is actually not by not 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 through evil, but they, what they're doing without is is generating a, a second consequence that is even more negative. That is a policy-driven inequality, which is what I mentioned before: is that the poor and the middle class are unable to climb up, and the uh, and at the same time, the government is thinking that there's no inflation. Of course, there is. Talk to anybody in the world. If there is inflation on the things and on the goods and services that they buy on a daily basis, the fact that hotels are down is irrelevant because I go to a hotel if I go on holidays or on business a certain period of time. But once or twice a month depends on my on my schedule. But it's not the same as what I do on a daily basis. I think that that's what we need to do because if not, the risk of discontent that we have seen. In so many countries, here in the eurozone, okay, I come back to the protests that we had in France, day after day after day after day, uh, against the the rising cost of living. So that those are important factors, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, and you know, if you think of it as inflation in the things that you need and deflation in the things that you want, obviously, if you have better means to deal with uh, uh, inflation then overall, you're in a better position. And so the people who are getting the inflation and who have less to deal with that inflation and the things that they they need, they're going to be in a worse off situation. And and that leads to political unrest, as, as you were saying. Now, there's another thing that you were saying that I thought was interesting. When you're bifurcating between the good inflation and the bad inflation, one of the things about the bad inflation that you were talking about is- I got a sense of you know debt deflation. You know, i.e., I, we're over our skis in terms of the amount of debt that we have. Uh, that you know, the economy is not rolling. doing incredibly well. Immediately, it made me think about our interview last time and your thought about once we have this. Uh, uh, you know, people are talking about it as this pent up demand. Uh, once that's over what kind of economy are we going to go back to what kind of dynamics in terms of that bad inflation are we going to avoid or actually have
2: in my personal opinion and sorry to be a little bit pessimistic here we're going back and massively to the concept of secular stagnation no And I come back to the point, you think we're going to see this recovery of consumption, we're going to see the recovery of the economy once the vaccine rollout is completed and all of this, but the IMF, the OECD, the the, the ECB, all of the international bodies are telling governments continue to spend hmm, because they fear the uh, outcome of the previous crisis. They fear that if they don't con- they, they don't continue spending aggressively and increasing the deficits in the recovery, then we're going to have a 2011 type of European crisis, which has nothing to do, by the way, with austerity, it has everything to do with bad government spending. But the point that I'm trying to make is that um, we need to go back to 2019 to understand where we're going because we're going there accelerating. In 2019 and 2018 already, the signals of stagnation, debt-driven stagnation, were very evident. Remember, in the fourth quarter of 2019, Germany was close to recession. Italy was growing at 0%. France was growing at 0%. And the US economy was starting to slow down as well. So I think that What we need to understand is that once we get out of the uh, 2020-2021 response to the COVID-19 crisis, and the mistake of putting all of the structural challenges of the economy under the COVID-19 umbrella, is that we're going at at 300 miles per hour to that same place that we were heading into in 2018. Which is uh, much lower growth, much lower productivity growth, much higher debt, and if—and this is the the, the constant uh, problem of of policy versus what 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 it tries to achieve. One, the, we know by now, after decades of different recoveries, that out of each recovery, the multiplier effect of government spending on the economy is lower, and in some cases negative. Okay, so the more we spend on uh, fiscal fiscal policy on increasing the imbalances created by current government spending the weaker the outcome is going to be. And unfortunately, I think that we tend to forget, uh, we, we tend to talk a lot about the recovery and the new normal, which is fine because we look at, we're looking forward without remembering that in 2019 and 2018, the signals of weakening growth were already there. So the point of debt deflation that you're mentioning, uh, here's the problem I have with the, the way it's, it's addressed debt is rising, uh, government debt is much higher, and they're trying to generate inflation in order to uh, reduce the debt in real terms via increase in in prices. Okay, we all understand that. What is the problem? The problem is that when your response is to increase deficits by massively uh, pumping up current government spending, you don't reduce debt in real terms either. That is my problem. My problem is that the inflationary policy does not achieve the level of inflation that would reduce the debt that has been accumulated, yet the fiscal policy and the deficit spending, which is fundamentally driven towards current government spending, generates even more debt even when there is inflation. And that is why we're seeing such a problem, for example, right now in, in some emerging economies, is that despite the fact that inflation is, is rising, none of the indebted sectors get out of the debt burden because the, uh, the, 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 the constant increase in uh, current spending outweighs the improvement of the debt via inflation, or the improvement of fiscal revenues.
1: Yeah, uh, that that is that's not a good picture, and I think it's a great segue into thinking about asset allocation, uh, because you know the question that comes to mind is is if that is the eventual outcome, and you, I'm investing for the medium to long term, then. I want to know what I need to do in order to deal with that situation. So let's talk about where we are right now from an asset perspective. Uh, we're, in a, you know, you were talking about the everything uh, bailout. I'm thinking of it in terms of the everything uh, asset price inflation. Uh, all sectors going up, uh, whether they're good or bad, whether they're uh, low growth or high growth sectors. Every everything's going up. Uh, how long can this go on, and uh, what do I do in order to protect myself if it can't go on for that much longer?
2: Mm-hmm. I always say that we have to think about this as if you were surfing. No, mm-hmm. uh, you need to understand that you're riding a wave. Okay, and uh, you uh, you cannot be either at the bottom of the wave because then you make no money. Okay, and you cannot be at the top of the wave because you're gonna crash. So my point is the following, is that when you have such level of correlation, which is insane, absolutely insane. And by the way, policymakers should pay more attention to the risk of such level of correlation between assets. But when you have that level of correlation, we need to understand three things, in my opinion. First, economic cycles are shorter and more abrupt each time. Okay, so many times we talk about a diversified portfolio and we're not diversified at all because everything is so correlated. So in reality, when you look at many of our portfolios and we think I'm very diversified and in reality, you only have one bet. And that is what most people have in their portfolios, which is weaker dollar. That's, That's your... Your pillar of the of the of the portfolio huh? your long emerging markets your long equities your long uh, emerging economies and eurozone bonds, and you are uh, exposed to the so called value sectors. Thank you very much. you are short the dollar okay but you're very you, so then you have to be very aware of how dangerous that is no? um, and and the point that i 'm trying to make is that uh, from the asset allocation perspective. If you're looking at the mid to long term, you need to understand that this process of secular stagnation that I mentioned erodes the value of the so-called value sectors. They become less and less valuable because uh, the the those sectors those companies that are valued from an, a position of uh their uh, you know the 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 rent that they get from just being there re- reduce their value and their margins and their uh and their profits point uh, that I think that we therefore that you need to take is that when you have an environment like we had between October and the end of the year, in which the so-called value sectors start to recover, you reduce exposure to them, like you were surfing. And when you see that uh, sovereign, uh, almost insolvent bonds go significantly higher in price, you reduce exposure to them. And you stand Basically, in uh, with a portfolio in which you have exposure to technology exposure to the stocks that are expo- that are benefited from the aging of the population that we mentioned before the technology revolution and the increase of uh competitiveness globally uh from more exports from china etc cetera, etc cetera. the sectors that benefit from those uh, secular trends uh sustainability technology and uh, demographics and you avoid the ones that are optically cheap or the ones that are too expensive compared to, with their solvency ratios? Yeah. So, um,
1: in terms of the reflation trade that's been going on now, there's mm-hmm. it seems a lot of the reflation trade has been a rotation out of uh, the sectors that had benefited uh, during the previous bout of secular stagnation, exactly the companies that you were talking about, but toward. Uh, the uh, the value stocks and in particular obviously energy and financial services. Uh, I want you to talk to me about that, but also the simultaneous move into what I would call uh, the bubblicious stocks. So it's almost like a barbell between. Okay, here are these stocks that are benefiting from the new wave forward. We're gonna su- we're going to go into the supercharged version, but much more risky version of those. And we're also going to, you know, move into these uh, these undervalued value plays, and that's what I'm going to do uh, during this whole reflation period. Uh, how how good of a scheme is that? How long can you make that trade before you get run over by uh, the change from because of secular stagnation?
2: Very good point. I think that you have a window of opportunity, more or less, in my opinion, until May of this year. Mm -hmm. The reason why is because all of those reflationary pressures and the base effect from 2020 still help you, okay? And, and, And most of the analysis that you're going to receive from investment banks from brokers is going to continue to uh be focused not on the earnings today or in the or on the margins today but on expectations that are completely impossible okay so i think that you have basically I don't know I mean I, I, but but I think you have more or less the first half of 2021 to continue to bet on the uh, mirage of the recovery of the value stocks okay once that happens you start to get the base effect goes negative hmm? Remember this, because people, people are seeing, oh, between March and, and, and May, the, the base effect in inflation and in growth in, in so many things, you know, in sales for many of these sectors, it's going to be phenomenal. It's going to look awesome. Think how it's going to look in September, relative to September last year. Hmm? And I think that that is an important uh, factor, is that you have to be tactical about the reflation trade without forgetting the disinflationary pressures that I mentioned before, and without forgetting that there is a very wide difference and a widening difference between the headline inflation and the one that we look at for our investments and for policy, and the one that consumers perceive, because the latter Affects the sales and the margins of the so called value sectors.
1: Yeah. And now, in terms of those value sectors, when you look at value in general, uh, let's look at Europe as an example. Uh, You're looking at old line industrials, uh, you're looking at cyclical stocks, you're looking at uh, financial services. And then, if you move to the United States, you're also looking at the energy sector in particular. Of those sectors, which ones are the worst off in the post May period and which ones are potentially a better play uh, for the post May period?
2: Industrials are better, oil and financials are worse. The reason why is because the energy sector, in particular should never be included in the concept of value. A sector that generated an 11% return on capital employed at $11 a barrel when I was working in it and generated a 10% return on invested capital at $130 a barrel a few years ago should never be included as a value sector because it's optically cheap in terms of pe or in terms of the multiples until you you make the valuation relative to how which returns they make relative to cost of capital on on a, a normalized environment so that though that is one that is very very uh, challenging and, and that you can play tactically and i think that most people actually do i think that investors in general have become aware of the uh, of the fallacy of the long term investor is investment in in the energy sector um financials particularly in europe the problem of the financial sector is not just inflation it's policy mm-hmm and it's negative real and nominal rate policy and regulation in the case of Europe in particular so those two things erode their net income margin and make their core capital uh, very small even when they increase it they need to constantly increase their core capital uh, in order to address the uh, non-performing loan issue which is which was already 900 billion before COVID nineteen, and you also have to understand that things that you, for example, talk about and have written in your in your Twitter account, etc., and all of these things that we're talking about—the digital dollar, the digital euro—those are bad for banks. That's that's destruction of the bank business. That, let's let's be fairly honest. The the policy of central banks and governments is not going towards improving the profitability of banks. It's going towards uh, uh, reducing it and zombifying them. Therefore, you, you, the market gives you very good opportunities to buy and sell out of them but not consider them value plays because you cannot consider uh, that a stock is a value stock um, because the multiples at which it is trading right now look optically cheap when the return that it generates relative to its cost of capital is a uh, very low or negative no so i think that those those elements we need to take into account so i would take away from the value concept those but i would think about the industrial sector as an important one where there can be a significant uh, uh, significantly interesting uh, interesting opportunities um the the situation that is going on with sustainability that i mentioned before is is a, is a good one for uh, the 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 utility sector. Sector in the long term, secular stagnation as well. So you know there are there are pockets of value in the value in the value uh, segment.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
1: You know, um, when you talk about energy, um, uh, I want to hone in on this a little bit. Uh, there are the integrated energy companies. There are up and downstream. And I know since you were in this field, you know all about that. And then there's midstream. I know that Warren Buffett, he likes the midstream because that has consistent cash flows. Yeah. Are there pockets within that? Uh, both up and downstream and midstream that are better than other sectors, and especially when you look at the integrated uh, oil giants, which uh, comprise the you know the full uh, panoply of, of assets.
2: Well, I agree with with Mr. Buffett there that midstream is an attractive part because it's 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 very basically almost like a bond, isn't it? No, uh, so I'm I agree with that. Now the problem of the integrated sector goes back many years ago. And we need to move. We need to think more around the beginning of the 2000s. The integrated energy sector used to be Exploration and production is a cyclical uh, business in which you invest in the low part of the cycle, and you reap the cash in the uh, high part of the cycle, and you churn the asset base by buying and selling assets. It was basically an asset management business. The refining business was counter-cyclical. So when the expiration and production didn't work, you got the cash flows from refining and marketing, now, and that generated an almost stable Environment and you added the gas and power. You basically had something that uh, was used to be ages ago uh, an almost byproduct of oil production. Natural gas. You were actually generating profits out of gas and electricity. So all of that generated sort of a sort of a, a, a an integrated view that would allow you to generate positive returns in the different parts of the cycle. When did it all go wrong? When? oil companies started to talk about the oil price. I remember when Exxon used to say, I don't care what oil price there is, what we need to do is to be profitable at whatever the oil price is. And then they started to, 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 to be pro-cyclical instead of anti-cyclical. So they started to invest aggressively in exploration and production when um, oil prices were rising, they started to invest aggressively in refining when overcapacity and refining was already there, and refining margins were going up. So instead of having uh, investments that have been made at the bottom of the cycle and that reap high returns at the peak of the cycle, they started to have investments that were made at the peak of the cycle that needed a higher peak of the cycle. And the, the entire concept of what an integrated oil company had to be disappeared because they're doing the opposite of what they do. And now, for example, think about it. When are they investing in renewables? Now
1: right.
2: they're investing in renewables now. Are you crazy? you know So now what they should be investing is an expiration. But no, when did this change? It changed when the industry, and I'm sorry to to go, went from being run by engineers to being run by lawyers. And it's been a disaster. And and the value destruction of the integrated oil and gas sector is so phenomenal that it's very difficult to justify in any way. So the problem that I see is to consider that that is value, because yes, you know, part of that of their assets generate value, okay. But there's an, there's an interesting factor here. Why are they selling the assets that are most valuable at the weakest part of the cycle and buying into the most in the, into the most aggressive valuation part of the cycle, the renewable sector? Now, you see, they're doing the opposite of what they should do, and and that, if you look at it now or 10 years ago or 10 years after is simply value destruction, no? It's the same way that when banks in Europe decided to expand out of the European Union to places where inflation was very high, because what they were doing was buy at peak valuations uh, alleged returns that they were only going to see diminish. And obviously, that value destruction is very important. So my point is, when you look at these sectors, look at the stocks that have the least, you know, for diversification, you already have your portfolio. You don't need a company to diversify for you. And so look for actually companies that are focused on something. You want to bet on higher oil prices, buy exploration stocks. If you want to bet on increasing capital expenditure in the, oil se- or in the energy sector, buy service stocks. If you want to bet on refining margins, buy refining stocks. But integrated, I'm sorry, the ship sailed many years ago.
1: Yeah, very uh, good insight into that sector. And I wish we could go on about that, because <laughs> I have a lot more questions, maybe that's for, for the next time. Uh, I, I, have another, I have some other questions for you. I mean, obviously, the big overhang of the dollar is, is there, we're going to get to that in a second. But Japan, we haven't talked about Japan at all. And I'm thinking about Japan, because a lot of the macro issues that we're talking about, they saw them first. Yeah, and the narrative I hear now is is that Japan is, to a degree, on the other side of the of the problem. They still have the debt overhang, two hundred and forty some percent of G- GDP government debt. But how are you looking at Japan as a medium to long term play uh, from an equities
2: perspective? From an equities perspective, you have a significant change in the corporate governance, and in the structure of the Japanese companies. Remember, the Japanese companies used to be part of that value trap that we were mentioning a couple of minutes ago. Why? Because they were huge conglomerates that basically used the returns of the good businesses to uh, finance very bad businesses. So there was a, a constant value destruction. A lot of that has changed, and I think that that is an important factor to acknowledge out of the Nikkei stocks. A lot of things have changed as well in terms of the uh, of uh, addressing total shareholder return. Um, I think that, however, Nikkei stocks, uh, you need to. Uh, you need to look at them precisely because they're behind that uh, that uh, uh, process that we that you just mentioned you need to look at them from a more cyclical standpoint is that they are more cyclical than they used to be They used to be sort of uh, boring, and uh, uh you know almost stable returns and and you just basically bought and sold them according to what the boj the bank of japan would do wouldn't you but i think that right now you have to acknowledge at least that they have when they're in a in a in an uptrend they have between 3 to 4 quarters of earnings and margins growth and then weakness hmm? because what they cannot uh change is the demographic factor of japan japan is not only uh Aging, it's also diminishing population, no, and their their businesses abroad again are very dependent on uh, on the cycle, no. So I think that, that as such, they're a good play on that, but um, I not. I don't think you would buy them for the long term, in my opinion. I think that you know, I I still continue to believe that that you you have to look more at U.S. companies for long-term investment. And the Japanese companies look at them from a cyclical perspective. I don't think that Japan is going to come out of this crisis growing faster than the United States or uh, addressing its problem of productivity and growth, again, because of the demographic and because of the overcapacity components that we mentioned. But I do think that there's a structural change in many of the Japanese companies that allow you to invest more comfortably than in the past in which you were basically subject to companies that had a strategy that was almost dictated by government.
1: Yeah, you know, um when you talk about Japan versus the United States, that is a great segue into the whole dollar conversation because when you we were talking about asset allocation earlier, you were saying basically, you know, these correlations are all there. Uh you're really betting on a a low dollar. You know, when yeah. you are going into emerging markets, when you're going into Europe, et cetera, what you're basically saying is is uh you know, the dollar's weak. But When you think about the United States outperforming, uh, to me, that's not a a, a scenario in which the dollar is weak. And we we seem to have uh, hit a bottom around 89.90 on the dollar index, and the dollar is now in the process of of moving up. Um, How do you see that happening over the medium to long term, and what does that mean in terms of- uh, you know, your own thinking about asset allocation?
2: I think that one of the interesting things that we're living right now is something that very few people would have imagined, in my opinion, me included, is that we see a, a radical bounce in commodity prices, and the countries that export those commodities are seeing their currency devalue relative to the dollar. You've seen the Brazil real, Mexican peso, etc., etc., etc. So many of those uh, currencies. What does that tell us? It tells us that the dollar is not strengthening or bouncing from the eighty-nine, ninety level to the ninety-two dollar index that it is right now, based on the fact that the Federal Reserve is undertaking a more hawkish policy. It is strengthening because the policies of the rest of the central banks are much more aggressive than that of the United States. And as such, what it tells us is that what we're living basically is a fiat debasement environment because the dollar is strengthening because everybody else is weakening, not because the, the, the Federal Reserve is undertaking policies to, to strengthen the purchasing power of the dollar. Actually, probably the opposite, isn't it? So I think that that is something that I find very interesting. And I think that it will play out into the second part of the year, because it also played out, if you remember, in QE1, QE2. Hmm? If you remember when, when the Obama administration came and there were huge, this, there was a huge Concerted consensus call of weak dollar, weak dollar, weak dollar, no matter what. And what we saw was that once that uh, expectation was uh, followed by much more aggressive policies from the rest of the central banks, but without what the Fed always does, which is to pay attention to the secondary demand of dollars, the Federal Reserve is the only central bank in the world that looks at the global demand for US dollars when thinking about monetary policy. Everybody else just prints. Hmm? And, and therefore, the, the fact that we saw that massive uh, increase in, uh, in, in the bet against the dollar, at the same time as we saw an increase in debt denominated in US dollars from emerging markets, you have the Hoover effect. You have a Hoover effect in which the, the dollar will, it's not going to strengthen massively, but it's going to go, it's going to remain in that in that range in which it was for for years. Now, between 90 to 95, 97, maybe gets to 100 DXY, not bad going from 90 to 100. In any case, we tend to forget what, what percentages are, but you know, it's it's that range where it moves that is basically telling you that the rest of uh, central banks in the world are conducting the same aggressive monetary policy of the Federal Reserve, even faster. Remember that the Central Bank of Europe has today uh, an eight point six trillion dollar balance sheet, sixty two percent. Of the GDP of the Eurozone versus the Fed's 35, 36%. No? So I think that the point is the dollar can only strengthen as long as everybody else does the same more aggressively, but without paying attention to the global demand for their domestic currency.
1: So, you know, the last thing from an uh, uh, investing perspective, uh, as a result of what you're saying, goes to alternatives to fiat uh, that is, gold, silver. Bitcoin in particular. Uh, Last time we spoke, we talked about Bitcoin being uh, an asset that's moving potentially towards more of a a currency alternative. And I think that the way that you described it is that when we think about fiat and alternatives to fiat, we've seen this play out in, in the past, we never know which alternatives come good at the end. Uh, so you're you know you're betting on horses that you don't know whether or not they're going to win the game, uh, but also then there's gold and silver. Uh, talk to me about where you see them now, especially with gold and silver not doing well, but uh, Bitcoin doing relatively well in the recent uh, trading days.
2: Yeah, I th- the first thing about gold and silver is that if you look at the supply demand scenario relative to the price in the uh, traded markets. They're clearly looking significantly more attractive. And I think that the point in gold and silver is that right now, they underperform, and rightly so, because of very optimistic expectations of recovery and very optimistic expectations of uh, mild but rising inflation and continued sort of uh, uh, almost uh, concerted and, and synchronized growth. Remember the concept of synchronized growth. So um once that fades, that's when they start to come back. And usually what the market gives you is opportunities like this to add to some gold and silver, which help you as, as, a, as a protector in a, of the portfolio when the market uh, starts to realize that the situation is not as rosy as we expect for the global economy. Also, because the more that central banks increase their balance sheet, they're going to buy more gold that's that's unquestionable they will buy more gold they might not be doing it today but they are doing it uh, on a, on a on a yearly basis so i think that you know right now they might continue to be underperforming they might uh, for those reasons optimistic approach or the the global wave of inflation etc but good opportunity to buy something so that once the tide comes back they start to protect cryptocurrencies are extremely procyclical hmm? cryptocurrencies we're all talking about them uh, right now a lot why because they're going up and the reason why they're going up is because everything else is going up hmm? But we need to understand that they're extremely volatile, and that's fine. You know, I think that what what we what we have learned is that they're staying power, particularly Bitcoin. Bitcoin's staying in power as an alternative to fiat has been significantly more uh, strong than what many critics expected, and I think that you know, in order to be money, they have to be three things. They have to be a unit of measure, a reserve of value, and a widely accepted means of payment. Well, two of those, they already are starting to fulfill. But we cannot forget the risk of regulation, intervention, uh, legal and uh, regulatory threats, which which we have read all over the place. Uh, Central banks don't like competition in in creation of money. And uh, we need to be aware of their volatility. When you have something that has very limited supply, think about it as a small cap stock. When you have something that has very limited supply and you have one, two very large buyers leading the price up, the price can come down very quickly. Um, But but the point that I'm trying to get to is that Bitcoin by now is almost, I would say, 60% of the way to being a a valid currency. And if we talked about not only last year, but but a few years ago, it was very, very far away. And I think that 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 is probably unstoppable. And again, I come back to the point that you mentioned in the question, is, hold on, because there's lots of cryptocurrencies. And we need to understand that the majority of them will simply disappear, that some of them will thrive, but many will disappear. So volatile, um, we need to be aware of the the risk of uh, the disappearance of many of them, but the reality that we cannot even uh, uh, question is that they are uh, gradually becoming money, particularly for the citizens in countries in which You know, you and I were talking from the perspective of two currencies, the euro and the US dollar, which are relatively stable and relatively safe. Think of the citizens in Argentina, in Brazil, in Iran, in Sudan, in so many countries, or Nigeria, where they see that the the reality of their domestic currency is only one way, which is down. Therefore cryptocurrencies look a lot less volatile and a lot less risky than the way that we might perceive them in the United States or in the UK. Very
1: good point. I'm glad to to end that on that that note. Uh, Daniel, as always, it's been a pleasure. We we talked about different things. We we didn't get a whole lot to the uh political situation in the Eurozone, that's still something I want to talk to you about, and also a little bit more about uh, oil and commodities. So uh, maybe in the next time that we have a conversation.
2: Always a pleasure. It's been a great chat. Always great to follow you and to and to chat with you. It's been very, very good. Thank you very much.